This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Imagine taking a supplement that increases your muscle mass, improves your strength and endurance, promotes weight loss, helps prevent injury from exercise, and enhances muscle healing when you do get injured. Sounds pretty impressive, doesn't it? But do these supplements really exist? How do you know they do what they claim? Which ones should you take? And most importantly, are they safe? You'll hear the answers to these questions as we learn about nutritional supplements for fitness. We're going to devote our next several podcasts to nutritional supplements taken to improve fitness. We'll cover their proven benefits as well as their risks. Our guest happens to be very knowledgeable in this area. He's Dr. Andrew Jagum, the Director of Sports Medicine Research at the Mayo Clinic. Andrew, welcome. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me. I think I need these products. I strained my back last week reaching for the TV remote, and I'm hoping that this will prevent that in the future. So tell me some good stuff about these things. They seem pretty popular. They are, yes. Dietary supplements are, are very popular among a variety of populations. And so a lot of the work that we do focuses a little bit more on the sports and performance applications of a lot of these products. And we encounter a lot of athletes who are very curious about these dietary supplements ingredients, but they're not just limited to athletes alone. And we find that general population, certain patients, all kinds of different individuals are oftentimes taking dietary supplements and sometimes as high as, you know, 50 to 70% of the population are taking one or many supplements at any given point in time. The article I was reading said that over two-thirds of the population have taken a nutritional supplement for fitness at some point. That, that seemed unbelievably high, but it sounds like that's pretty accurate. It is. And, and what we find, too, is if they're taking one, chances are they're likely taking a variety of different products that contain multiple ingredients within them. They're taking them for a variety of different reasons, and, and hopefully they understand what those reasons are so that they're taking the, the correct supplement kind of for the intended purpose, but uh, sometimes that's not always the case. Well, why do they take these? What are the reasons they give for taking these supplements? Most of the time, athletes have the ultimate goal of improving performance, and depending on the specific sport, that could mean improved strength, improved power, improved endurance, or an improved ability to recover from intense training and workouts and competition. So generally their goal or reason for use kind of falls into any one of those different categories or umbrellas. And then kind of within that, there is certain categories and ingredients that may confer some of those purported benefits. So some of them inherently might be more applicable for an athlete trying to put on muscle mass during their off-season training program. Certain supplements like protein, for example, might offer an advantage for them or just provide that key nutrient that plays a big role in, in helping to increase muscle mass, which ultimately might translate to improved sport performance. So that's not always the case, but generally that's kind of the thought process and some of the reasons for use that, that we encounter on a frequent basis. And then I would say the other kind of major area reason for use is more of the generalized health benefit. So maybe taking a multivitamin that contains obviously a variety of different key vitamins and minerals 
and other health focused nutrients for a lack of a better term. But there again, just kind of taking it for a umbrella type use. Like I just want to be healthier. I want to reduce my risk of getting sick or uh, prevent risk factors for a variety of different diseases or conditions. So I would say that's kind of the other common reason for use that we see. Well, let's start by talking about the definition of a dietary nutritional supplement. Does that include things like vitamins, uh, minerals? What, what actually is the definition of this? It, it does. So those specific ingredients will fit in that description. But 1994 is actually when we first saw kind of an established definition of what is a dietary supplement. So Congress passed the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act in 1994, which established this official definition. And, and so within that, we see that a, a dietary supplement has to include vitamins, minerals, herbs, amino acids. It can contain organ tissues or extracts or metabolites that are kind of concentrated and purified and then sold in various forms. So it can be soft gels, capsules, tablets, powders, Sometimes these will be found in like a meal replacement bar or a ready to drink shake, but it has to kind of fit that broad description. And then it has to be readily available in nature, I guess, for a lack of better term. So it has to be somehow found or traced back to a different plant or animal type source. It can't be something that's synthetically derived in a, a lab type setting. Um, that's where we start to transition into other types of performance enhancing substances or performance enhancing agents, but these are drug compounds. These are pharmaceuticals. Sometimes again, they inappropriately get all lumped into the same category, but really when we start talking about those, that's a different conversation. Those are performance enhancing drugs. Most of those are controlled substances. And again, they're not sold over the counter. They don't belong in the same conversation of dietary supplements. So it's just important to establish, you know, that definition of what is and isn't a supplement. When we talk about supplements, we're talking about vitamins, minerals, amino acids, key metabolites that are somehow, again, available in nature, and then obviously concentrated and then sold in various forms as dietary supplements. All right. Everybody wants a simple fix. You know, they want a pill to lose weight. They want a pill to fall asleep. They want a pill to get fit. How do these supplements compare to just good nutrition and just basic exercise? Really those foundations of performance, you know, when we talk about kind of proper training, proper sleep, proper recovery strategies, those things are going to be much more impactful to the overall performance and well-being of an athlete than any dietary supplement will be. There are certain supplements that have been very well researched and do have some performance benefits, but the type of benefit that we see is, you know, maybe five, 10, maybe upwards to 15% of an improvement. And again, that's kind of under the assumption that they're already taking care of a lot of those other important foundations of performance, because taking any of these supplements isn't really going to overcome any major deficiencies in the diet or insufficient sleep and those types of habits that are really, really important in an athlete's everyday life. So even the ones that are more well-supported within the literature, again, you still have to kind of put in the effort and do a lot of the other lifestyle foundations of performance to really uh, make any kind of meaningful impact on performance. 
and again, that's an important distinction with dietary supplements and those that other category of performance enhancing drugs, whereas that might not be the case, you know, sometimes those things can have a really profound impact on performance, anything else aside, but again, that's why within the dietary supplement realm, these may offer improvements, but they're much more marginal compared to, you know, again, the, the importance of sleep, proper training, proper diet, and those other kind of foundations. So these aren't the magic bullet. We're still going to have to do the work of the basic of nutrition, exercise, and maybe a bit of enhancement from these products, but it's not going to turn things around significantly for anybody. Yep. Unfortunately, we don't quite have that magic bullet yet, but we'll see if we get there one day within the science world. All right. Well, are these products all available as over-the-counter? Are there some prescription products as well? They are all available over the counter. So that's one important kind of component of what would fit that description or definition of a dietary supplement. Some of them can be prescribed. For instance, if an athlete has blood work done and they find that they're vitamin D deficient, a physician can write a prescription for more of like a pharmaceutical grade vitamin D source where they could go to a pharmacy and then fill that prescription to get vitamin D in that regard. But they also could go purchase it online or go to any kind of general supplement store or grocery store and, and also buy vitamin D right off the shelf. So likely there's not really a major difference between the actual source of vitamin D that they're getting, whether it's prescription based or not, they just could have that potentially you know, covered by insurance or things like that from a cost perspective. But otherwise all dietary supplements should be available to purchase over the counter. Okay. Well, some of these products make some pretty dramatic claims to improve fitness and enhance performance. Are these claims accurate? Are they telling us the truth? I would say some of them may be telling the truth. Some of them may exaggerate the truth a little bit and obviously try to upscale the magnitude of the claim or the benefit that that supplement might offer. So oftentimes what we see within this industry is the marketing is a little bit better than the science is, even though it may be based on kind of sound scientific principles, there may be a strong you know, mechanism of action kind of supporting the use of that supplement. And there may be, you know, clinical trials or clinical evidence to support some of those claims. But again, those are in very controlled conditions. And the, at the end of the day, the improvement might've been five to 10% increase in lean body mass or sprint performance or strength output, whether or not you see that same match claim on a supplement label might be a different story. So again, some of them might have some truth to it, but I would say oftentimes those claims can be exaggerated a little bit. And those are actually regulated by the Federal Trade Commission. So that's another government agency that will actually kind of oversee a lot of the marketing and claims that dietary supplement companies are making about their products. And another important caveat to marketing and labels is that supplement also has to disclose that they can't be used to treat, prevent any kind of health condition or chronic health-related issue. So that's an important disclosure that needs to be listed on that label. So that product has to be listed, A, is a dietary supplement, and then B, you'll oftentimes see that specific statement somewhere on that label as well. Um, just kind of informing the consumer that this isn't to be used to treat or prevent any kind of disease, even though there might be strong evidence to support that they could be used to manage a condition. Same thing, like we said earlier with, with vitamin D, that's obviously going to be part of the treatment plan. If someone is vitamin D deficient is to perhaps supplement with vitamin D, but they can't necessarily put that claim right on the label. 
can you categorize these nutritional supplements? Are there categories that you can define that would help people understand what's out there? Yeah, that's generally what we see is they're, they're kind of categorized based on some kind of overarching goals or reasons for you. So some of them might be more beneficial for an endurance athlete, just because the physiological and metabolic demands of an endurance type sport are generally a lot different than what we would see with maybe a strength and power type sport where those athletes are trying to get as big and strong and powerful as they can. So they might be more likely to kind of lean towards certain supplements that are more geared towards those kind of purported benefits and vice versa. And then in the general kind of fitness landscape, I guess we oftentimes see supplements or ingredients that are marketed more towards an aesthetic purpose. So trying to help them lose weight, burn more body fat, help in improving their physique and kind of visual appearance more than a performance-based application. And so a lot of the ingredients that are common in those types of products will have purported physiological benefits more geared towards that application, whether they're increasing metabolic activity or somehow trying to increase fat oxidation, you know, lipolysis or some of those kind of underlying metabolic pathways or, or metabolic applications that may or may not actually translate to improved weight loss or improved body fat loss and things like that over time. So generally we will see kind of just some natural different deviations within these different products and ingredient profiles, just kind of based on the underlying rationale for use and what the intent or what the overall goal is for taking them. With pharmaceutical products, generally they're often done as research performed on them by the pharmaceutical companies. And then once that research is done and then they're approved by the FDA, that company is allowed to market and sell these products. But with these nutritional supplements, I don't imagine that really the manufacturers are interested in doing research. Some of these products have been out there for a long time. So is there much research done in these things? And if so, who's doing it? There are quite a bit of research studies that have been done. I would say not enough to match the amount of products and ingredients that are sold and, and kind of available on the market. There are a lot of industry sponsored trials that have been completed on all kinds of different ingredients, whether it's intended for performance applications or more health related benefits. And sometimes they're investigator initiated projects where they're looking at a certain ingredient and maybe a very targeted application for performance benefits, or oftentimes we see it in more intended for clinical type use to maybe support recovery following a surgery or an injury to help that individual heal or recover faster or minimize the deleterious effects of that condition or injury or so forth. So they may, again, pursue a, a trial looking at a specific application of that product or ingredient to see if it maybe help promote healing, recovery, and so forth. So there's a kind of a variety of different ways those studies happen or come about. And then again, some of them are industry sponsored where it's a specific ingredient manufacturer or company that really wants to invest in that product to see if it kind of matches structure and function claims so that they can obviously kind of use that from a marketing standpoint and kind of provide some supporting evidence to match some of their claims. So oftentimes they'll put those right on a label or on their website saying clinically proven results based on some study done in a university setting and they'll kind of provide a link to the abstract or, or publication. So 
we kind of see a variety of different ways these studies come about. Well, you're involved in sports medicine research, and as, as you've looked at some of the research that's been done on these products, is it good research? Are the results sound? Or are they kind of stretching the results, small samples, uh, things like that? I would say a little bit of both, to be honest. There are situations where if you kind of dive into the original research and the study design that was used or the interpretation of the results, uh, you definitely kind of get a sense that some of those findings were stretched a little bit or the study was kind of set up in a way where, not to say they, they made up the results, but certainly in a situation where it was more favorable for a positive outcome. And then oftentimes what we see in, in kind of the peer review world is those are more likely to be published anyway, where there is some type of positive outcome instead of null findings. So there's somewhat of a publication bias where we may just not see the data that didn't result in a positive finding just because it may or may not have gotten to the the peer review or the publication standpoint. And that's not to say all those studies that are industry sponsored are bad or they were somehow manipulated. You know, I've, I've been a part of dozens of those trials and studies and we didn't have any outside interference from a, a supplement or manufacturing company. So there is good data out there to support some of these products or support that they may not be useful for certain applications as well. And oftentimes those will be done on a very specific population where the outcome is based on this dose, based within this group of athletes, we didn't see it have this kind of an impact on performance. And then you could say, you know, whether or not that aligns with, with previous research in that area. So one thing that I think needs to improve a little bit within the literature is making sure that the product that was studied has some type of certificate of analysis associated with it so that when they're doing research on a product off the shelf that they sent that to another lab site to actually can kind of guarantee you the ingredients that were in that product so that we can interpret the, the results appropriately, um, kind of knowing what was actually in that ingredient and not just kind of hoping that the, the supplement ingredients match the supplement label. Cause unfortunately that, that's not always the case. So hopefully that changes a little bit within a lot of these, you know, supplement related studies is to to kind of dig a little bit deeper and making sure we're getting an idea of the ingredient profile that was actually in that product that was studied. How much regulation is in the nutritional supplement industry? So the FDA does regulate the dietary supplement industry. I would say, uh, unfortunately, it's in more of a post-market surveillance type of role. So supplement companies and manufacturers don't have to demonstrate any safety and efficacy supporting data before they release a product to the market. They can take an ingredient that's already been introduced or defined as a dietary supplement, and they can add it together in their own proprietary formula or blend, put a label on it, and then start selling it. They don't have to demonstrate that it is safe and effective you know, before they market and sell that particular product. The FDA will get involved if there's all of a sudden kind of a known history of adverse events associated with that product. Supplement manufacturers are bound by law to report any adverse events that they are made aware of. And then health professionals and consumers are also strongly encouraged to report any adverse event as well to the FDA. They have their own adverse event reporting portal where they like to consolidate a lot of those adverse events. And that's where they'll start to you know, file a claim or make an investigation into a particular product if all of a sudden they see this large spike in adverse events associated with a certain ingredient or, or product that's on the market. Or same thing with the Federal Trade Commission and 
or sometimes they work kind of hand in hand where if they're noticing false claims or inappropriate claims, especially about any kind of disease or health condition, oftentimes they'll file a claim and ask, you know, kind of follow a cease and desist to that supplement manufacturer asking them to change the claims, change the ingredient profile, or pull that market from the shelves until, you know, more information can be collected to make a, a decision at the time. So it is regulated. There are multiple government agencies that play various roles in overseeing dietary supplements. I would say it's not a perfect system and there's certainly room for improvement, especially on the pre-market regulatory side of it. I would love to see a little bit more of a, a stricter process in place for that, but currently that's just not the case. Mm -hmm. These are basically over-the-counter products. Are there products available for recreational athletes that would be banned by professional athletic associations? Most of the time, there aren't any over-the-counter dietary supplements that would really fit that particular example. So most of the time, as long as the supplement itself contains actual dietary supplements, what can sometimes happen is supplement manufacturers, whether intentional or not, there's sometimes contaminants that end up in that particular product. And then if an athlete buys that off the shelf and they take it not knowing that there's an actual contaminant or some kind of banned substance in that product that wasn't on the label, that's where they can be at fault. And that's where they can unknowingly take something that is a banned ingredient. But if the supplement label kind of fits the definition of a dietary supplement and they're following good manufacturing practices and there's no adulterants within it, then they should be fine. Most of the banned substances by professional sports or Olympic sports a lot of those lists include more of the performance enhancing drugs uh, that we kind of briefly mentioned earlier, certainly anabolic steroids, different stimulants and those types of controlled substances are what are generally on those types of lists. Now the NCAA and even lower levels, if we get into the high school associations, they may have different policies. Some of those are state by state. So high school athletic associations oftentimes will post a similar type of list on their website that has information on what's banned or what's not allowed for athletes to be consuming. I will say at the high school level, generally, they're probably the most strict, certainly in regards to any coaches, trainers, strength professionals providing any supplements to athletes. That's generally restricted. Most athletic associations I've, I've ever encountered at the high school level. So they just kind of want to take a I think a hands-off approach, which is probably for the best, um, just because not everyone is well-versed enough to provide recommendations on supplements. So at that level, they're pretty restrictive in terms of what they allow and don't allow for dietary supplements. Mm -hmm. So it's really important for athletes or parents to kind of be doing their due diligence with asking the right individuals, asking physicians, you know, some of these questions about my kid has a lot of questions about these supplements. You know, what do you think? Because they're, they're likely not going to be getting those answers at the high school setting because they're, they're just not well-equipped to answer those kinds of questions. Now you mentioned contaminants and I've also heard that the consistency of active ingredients, even from one tablet to another in the same bottle may be quite different. Is that accurate? Yep. And, and those are kind of two, you know, very separate issues. So the contaminants issue is one where supplement companies are, Again, I, I don't, I can't speak for them, whether they do this intentionally or not, but there's certain drugs or hormone like compounds or agents that end up in these supplement products. 
my hunch is that they're doing that so that the products seem to offer more performance benefits that consumer takes it and thinking, wow, I really feel great when I'm taking this supplement. It's like, well, yeah, because there might be some amphetamine like compounds in there that aren't supposed to be in there. Those are controlled substances. And that's what we would classify as an adulterant or a contaminant. And so if supplement companies aren't subscribing to, you know, a third party regulatory company that tests their product to guarantee that it's pure, there's no contaminants in it. You know, sometimes the consumer is left to not really know what actually is in that product. If the supplement label matches the ingredient profile, or if there's any, again, exogenous compounds or adulterants in there that that aren't supposed to be in that particular product. And then the other issue sometimes is with adequate, just kind of mixing of that powder itself within, you know, if we think of like a tub of protein powder or some other kind of supplement type powder, if it's not properly mixed, the specific ingredients in there might not be balanced per serving. So when you take a, you know, oftentimes they come with a little plastic scooper. So if you scoop up one serving of your supplement, you may not be getting an even distribution of all these specific ingredients in there. Not that, that would necessarily be problematic from a health standpoint, but you're just kind of missing out, I guess, on some of those key you know, nutrients or sufficient dosages of those ingredients to confer any kind of immediate benefit or whatever the intended use was. Let's speak a little bit about the safety issues. I know that some of these products uh, can have drug drug interactions with another pharmaceutical agent. For example, products that might contain vitamin K could certainly interact with the patient taking warfarin on a daily basis. Are there safety issues with some of these products? That drug interaction risk is certainly one that's very real and almost one where you would need to confirm with obviously a physician or a a pharmacist to really kind of get the best answer there, just because there are so many different products and ingredients out there. And then so many different pharmaceutical options, it's almost impossible to keep up with all the potential links and risks, you know, of kind of counteracting benefits or or risks there. So that's certainly a real risk and, and something to kind of do again, your homework on consulting with a professional to get their expert opinion on some of those risks. But then even the individual ingredients or products themselves might carry some inherent risks. But generally those risks are if people are kind of misusing them or not necessarily following the recommended serving size. So even with something like vitamin D, which is a a commonly recommended supplement, you can have vitamin D toxicity if you Mm -hmm. go way beyond the recommended serving size. So you know, following the RDA or a, a supplement serving size generally carries a lower risk. Uh, but where people can encounter problems is if they go way beyond the recommended serving size or what we see sometimes in the supplement practices is I know in pharmaceutical world, they'll refer to it as polypharmacy where people are taking multiple medications that sometimes have kind of compounding adverse event risks with them. And we almost see something similar in the, in the supplement world where people are taking multiple products, not knowing of the overlapping ingredient profiles. I see it a lot actually with caffeine related products. So someone Mm -hmm. might be a coffee drinker and then they take a pre-workout and then they might have a five hour energy later in the afternoon because they're tired and and like they weren't quite paying attention that there's a fairly high amount of caffeine in all those different options that they're listing. So they may just encounter a high risk of adverse events because of that, because of the overlapping nature of those 
you know, multiple ingredients or, or products that they're consuming. So it is important to add that a lot of these haven't necessarily been studied in all populations. So certainly in clinical populations, in youth, we don't have as much data to support safe and effective guidelines for a lot of these different supplements. So that's just an important thing to keep in mind as well. Mm-hmm. I recall a patient I had about a year ago who I found to be a vitamin D toxic and he was taking an over-the-counter vitamin D supplement containing 25,000 international units per capsule. No instructions on the bottle. He assumed that was a daily dose, but uh, that's way more than uh, any individual should need. Well, yep. Let me ask you to summarize by maybe giving us two or three key points of importance regarding nutritional supplements for improving fitness? The first one regarding dietary supplements is, is I always try to reiterate that it's important to, again, establish kind of a solid foundation of performance and lifestyle habits. So making sure that you are eating enough, eating enough of the right things, following sound training programs, strength conditioning programs, getting enough sleep, rest and, and all that first before you even start introducing the, the idea of, a, of taking a dietary supplement. Second, I, I usually recommend getting lab work done or consulting with a physician or, or some other registered dietitian or someone who has a lot of background regarding dietary supplements to see if there is a reason for use or a need for taking that supplement instead of just blindly taking a lot of vitamin D or a lot of iron, uh, like we see a lot of endurance athletes taking, just assuming that they need that iron or vitamin D because they hear a lot about it, which it may be true, but we don't necessarily want to just guess and then blindly take the dose, not knowing what kind of a dose is actually needed or justified. So if there's a particular test or lab that can be ordered that aligns with that supplement that would justify or kind of support the reason for actually needing it or using it, and then also help provide some kind of guidance on the amount of dose or the dosing that would be appropriate to use as well. So it's important to do that because you don't, A, want to run the risk of introducing any potential harm, and then B, you don't want to necessarily waste your money if you don't need that supplement. If you're not deficient, you know, taking it's not necessarily going to all of a sudden make you better or be that magic bullet. So you know, making sure there is a good reason for use and if it's even worth spending the time and money on taking that product. And then lastly, I usually recommend people kind of do their homework on that supplement itself. So look up the company, making sure that they follow good manufacturing practices. I usually recommend people selecting a product that does follow some third party kind of level of guarantee. So does that company outsource their products to, there's a lot of different third party uh, regulatory companies that are out there, but they will test that product, making sure that the dietary supplement label aligns with what's actually in the product, making sure that it's free of any agents like heavy metals or any other kind of t- contaminants that are in that product. And oftentimes that's really important for athletes who may be drug tested or bound by certain regulations when it comes to banned substances. So by consuming a product that follows one of these third-party levels of guarantee, you can put a little bit more faith and trust in that product, knowing that what you're taking doesn't have any banned substances in it. Um, Because that's oftentimes a quick way to to end your season or professional level. You could be banned by that particular sport or miss out on, on competitions or be stripped of medals. So it's really important for athletes to do their due diligence and homework when they're considering taking a dietary supplement. 
We've been discussing nutritional supplements for improving fitness with Dr. Andrew Jagum, the Director of Sports Medicine Research at the Mayo Clinic. Andrew, thanks for sharing your knowledge with us on this really interesting topic. I'm uh, really looking forward to our uh, next few podcasts with you. Absolutely. Looking forward to it as well. Thanks for having me. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week. Music